Yo, Mike, what it is, yo? I'm Kylie McDaniel from Fangraphs.com, and on the other line, it's the Bryce Harper to my Scott Boris, Eric Longenhagen. Hello. <laughs> there it is. Hi, how are you doing, Eric? I'm doing. I'm doing well. This was the end of a pretty nutty week for me. We had the uh, first pitch Arizona conference here in town. I was uh, lucky enough to be invited back to do some uh, on-panel discussion about prospects there, and then of course Fall Stars was was this weekend too, and. Uh, we have many deadlines and some of the stuff uh, that we've been writing about we're going to talk about today. So it's, it has been busy, uh, but we are at the end and uh, I'm looking forward to getting this done and then relaxing the rest of the, the rest of today. What yeah. are you going on? You're moving. Yeah, I'm moving tomorrow, which by the time you hear this, it Jeez. will have already happened. So we'll find out what things I didn't do. Luckily, I'm doing the part where you um, you pay the people to pack some of your stuff for you because this will presumably be my last move in a long time. So I feel like it's worth it. Uh, so I've done almost no packing, and they're going to be here in like 20 hours. Uh, but tonight I'll, I'll, I'll get some done. A couple quick things before we jump into our first topic. Wanted to uh, make sure to plug some of the various places you can find our stuff. One will be the new prospects landing page at fangraphs.com slash prospects. Uh, our Twitter account, FG underscore prospects. And the email address, which also stands for our podcast as a whole, but you know our stuff in general. It goes directly to our inbox. This isn't like something that we don't read. Although if we don't respond, there's probably a good reason. It's prospects at fangraphs.com. Um, lastly, I was texting with, we'll say friend of the podcast, Ben Lindbergh. Um, he hasn't been on yeah. it before, but we've been on his, so we close enough. Um, we were going back and forth about um, uh, home entertainment audio. So I'm looking at getting a new TV and speakers and stuff, and I know I'd been to his place before, and he has the Sonos situation, which I also have, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pricey. So I was like, do I really want to expand here? And so we're kind of going back and forth about some of the options, because I know he has some of that too. And we eventually settled on telling him that, uh, and I'm quoting myself here, it seems like 80% of what I actually want is how I handle, usually handle big purchases. And he said, 80% of what people actually want is how I aim to provide in all areas of my life. <laughs> And then he said, you and Eric should rebrand as 80% of the podcast you actually want. <laughs> See, we had passed it on last week, tell us we had a good podcast, Sam, and I'm like, maybe this is a good slogan? Like, the McDonough- the Untitled McDonoghagen Project, 80% of what you're hoping for? <laughs> I guess I want to know what the extra 20% is, and then try to fill that gap in w- with, like, a sheer force of will. Yeah, it costs, depending on the product, it costs, like, an extra $2,000, so it doesn't sound like we're interested Since in providing we the charisma. That. Yeah, we, we, we don't need that stuff. All right, so we will jump into topic number one, which is very timely because this, uh, well, I'm not sure what day this podcast is going to come out. I'm going to guess on Wednesday, and on Monday we will have released, because it is a joint effort, uh, the top 50 prospects. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Close. Freudian. Yeah, the, well... The, in a way, but the top 50 free agents, I guess prospects to be signed as major leaguers, um, which uh, I guess I did the ranking and projecting of contracts in the sort of Dave Cameron role, and then wrote uh, some capsules about the market conditions for 26 of the 50 players. Uh, and then Eric, among some other authors, came in and wrote breakdowns of the players, more of like how good the player is, uh, as opposed to the market itself, uh, for I guess 10 of the 50 guys. So we're going to sort of run through uh, some highlights of... Stuff that will appear in that piece, some stuff that doesn't, um, some stuff we've been hearing. Uh, I mixed it in the introduction to that. Yeah. Uh, some things I'm hearing about teams, and I know people never read the intro, so I should probably repeat it here. Uh, but Eric, I've been talking too much. Why don't you jump in and tell me some of the uh, players you're interested uh, most in among this free agent class? Well, I guess my first question is, this is the free agent class that collectively 
the media and the industry has been talking about for several years now as being like the free agency class that people have been saving money for. I mean, it was practically used as an excuse last offseason for the lack of money that was being spent. So now like we're on the eve of the thing and you we have this list of names and do you think that uh our, the last 3 years of discussion about this free agent class uh was completely overblown based on the names that we're looking at here now. Uh, currently I think there are four guys that are actually free agents that are definitely going to get over 50 million dollars, <laughs> which I think is almost below average if you just do it by that simple measure. Um, and is, do you think that's just because of a talent attrition? Uh, some of these guys have you know, disappointed or been hurt uh, or other things that have maybe impacted the, their performance on the field. Do you think that, we, that this was unnecessary hype or that this through you know, a series of random events is just not as good looking a group as uh, we hoped it would be two years ago? Well, unnecessary hype is the actual given name of Jeff Passan. He just, that's more of a stage name to go by Jeff Passan. Um, I, I think it's a combination of multiple things. So obviously the reason I think way out in advance that this got identified as a big class is you had two sort of generational talents that were going to hit free agency at age 26, which is Richard and Harper. And they both got there and they're both like, you know, something close to what was expected. I think they're, I think Harper at least was expected to be a little above this performance wise. And I guess Machado with, you know, he's had some injuries and obviously some of the uh, social aspects of how he handled himself in the playoffs. Like, those both might serve to bring down their prices from some people were kicking around the idea that they might get $500 million and now I think the most either of them gets is probably 350 guaranteed. And one of, you know, Machado might be closer to 250 than 350. Um, so obviously those are a little lower than you expect. And then you have some guys that were thought to be candidates to opt out and hit the market that aren't. And David Price and Kershaw for obviously different situations corbin was not seen as a big name he became one um yeah and then you have guys like donaldson brantley pollock all got hurt and became hurt yeah it became you know just naturally like at 27 they look great and then by the time they're 31 they're hitting the market they're less great like that's sort of standard like daniel murphy um mccutcheon's that way too this year yep and like kimbrell i think is starting to show some real signs of wear and tear to where he might still get a four-year deal but it's not going to be like the precedent setting deal that i think some people thought he might get and you got guys like jed lowry and nate eovaldi like we have it ninth and tenth in the rankings like no nobody was talking about those names even in the middle of the season as big time guys so i think there was some some natural sort of um regression from the top names just as they got older naturally and then also i think like it may have been a little overblown just because you had those like three or four names you could throw around when in reality it was really probably only going to be the two that we're talking about. For those that don't remember, way back in 2009 or 10 or somewhere just before that, uh, Bryce Harper was a high school junior. And at the behest of, I'm assuming, his agent – we can, advisor about, at the time. we can now talk about an amateur's <laughs> advisor now that he's reached free agency. Uh, the young man got his GED and went to the College of Southern Nevada in Henderson, Nevada for a year of junior college ball and entered the draft at an unusually young age, specifically so that he could hit free agency now at age 26. How much money does uh, did that make Bryce Harper? Like age, age 28? free agent Bryce Harper versus age 26 free agent Bryce Harper. What do you think the difference in those two contracts would look like? Assuming that they would be like the same, the same talent level, which I, I guess same talent level. Yeah. yeah. I guess if we're saying two years from now, I guess he should be, you know, probably still in his prime. Um, I would say he probably, I mean, we'll say a year and a half uh, extra on the contract, which 
you know, 30 to 35 a year, like it might be an extra $50 million. So there you go. Um, that is pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that would seem to be worth getting a GED and going to a junior college and then putting up crazy numbers with a wood bat as a 17-year-old. And Machado got there because he was, uh, I think, just before Randy Gisarelli's study, he was one of the super young hitters that went high in the draft that if we would have known then what we know now, uh, I think there would have been a legitimate conversation between him and Harper, both being super young sure. hitters, um, with essentially the same question we have right now. Like, Harper seem, seemed at the time like, oh, he catches, but he's probably going to be a right fielder. And Machado mm-hmm. looks like he's going to be a shortstop, maybe third base. Do you take the guy with the positional edge or the guy that looks like he's a better hitter? Like, that's basically how it's played out now. Like, you can still go either way, still based on that question. What do you think Harper's true talent level is? I mean, it's sort of been all over the map. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Like, this is a guy who was up at age 19 yeah. um, and was a four-and-a-half win player immediately. And then over the... Many years, he has more or less hovered. You know, he had one ridiculous ten war season, uh, one beset by injuries, but has mostly been like a four or five win guy. Um, I don't know. It, it feels like this contract year uh, was somewhat disappointing, uh, but he was still he still hit two fifty, which is way down from two seasons ago when he hit three twenty. A two fifty, three ninety, five hundred is still incredible. So why is this uh, is the three and a half win guy that he was in 2018? What what you think he is moving forward? What teams think he is moving forward? Or do people still think that this is like an annual five win guy on average, and that this was just a down year? I, I was going to say it's a five win guy, and then I I pull up his his player page and I see that the the steamer projections have him as a four point nine win guy. There you go. So it, it would appear that that's where it is. Obviously, he's had some. Some injuries, some streakiness, some injuries that he sort of played through that probably affected, um, how, you know, obviously how good his numbers were. He's obviously his BABIP's been up and down. It's gone anywhere from 264 to 356 just in the last three years. Um, so I think there's been a good dose of bad luck along with him wanting to play through stuff that he maybe, you know, all things being equal, maybe wouldn't have played through uh, so that he could be, you know, sort of only healthy when he's putting up all of his numbers. Um so, yeah, I think it's five, and then I know, like, the sort of, um, not lazy, but sort of standard uh, deduction of war on a per-year basis when you're trying to do, like, the um, the baseline math on contracts like this is to take off a half a win once a guy has uh, passed his prime. So if you call him, what, a five-win player for the next two years and then call it four-and-a-half-four as you go down, like this, the 10-year deal would basically have him through the end of his career. Do you think... Uh he Washington finds a way to retain him or do like the, does the emergence of Soto and the Victor Robles's presence, etc., uh, act as almost like a deterrent. Like they're fine moving on. Yeah. It's a good question. I've heard a bunch of different things, both about the nationals and Harper specifically. So, uh, I guess people will have already read the free agency post, but again, nobody reads the intro. So I'll repeat what's in there now. Um, from talking to, uh, we'll call it the amorphous industry sources, uh, people believe that Machado will sign first out of the two of them, uh, both because I believe Machado's agent also has Donaldson and maybe a couple other guys, um, uh, and also because, yeah. and also because Harper's like obviously Boris is going to wait until after Machado signs so he knows what number he has to beat because even in the draft when it's you know my guy goes fifth overall but I need to get the highest bonus I'm going to wait until the first four guys sign so that I can get a bonus like a hundred thousand dollars higher than them like he handles it this way in relatively small potatoes situations so of course he's going to handle it in this sort of precedent sitting situation 
so I would imagine he's going to get the biggest deal, and I would guess, you know, say Machado waits until post-Thanksgiving, right around winter meetings to sign, and then, you know, Harper goes late in December or into January. That would be kind of the sweet spots for those things to happen, that if Harper's on the market in February, probably some things went wrong. Uh, so I, I would guess that that's how it goes. The sort of chatter is that the Nationals aren't sure how much money they want to spend on their payroll going forward. If they want to maybe use all these, you know, Gio Gonzalez got traded, uh, Daniel Murphy set in the market, um, obviously Harper, that all this money's coming off the books, and then you know, have Soto and Robles emerging. Do they want to use this opportunity to bring the payroll down a little bit, but still field a competitive team? Or do they want to, you know, say, hey, we got Scherzer in Strasburg, we have to keep going for it now. We just, we're lucky that we got Soto and Robles emerging. Let's go spend all the money that's coming off the books, whether it's on Harper or somebody else. Uh, to replace or you know sort of backfill here, and the belief is that if Boris it gets into February doesn't have his deal, that Washington's ownership, where it's a joke in the industry that the assistant GM is Scott Boris, um, that they will be the backstop to whether it's a, you know a one year pillow contract for him to hit the market again and have like an eight win season and then go cash in, or if it's one of these like eight year deals with a huge number that's just over Machado that has an opt out after year one or you know any sort of scenario you can imagine a lot of them. That was one of the other things I wrote in his breakdown is there's yeah. so many different things with like state income tax and uh, opt outs and uh, all kinds of different like escalators and options and things where the actual top line number that ends up getting reported for what he got is there's going to be all kinds of money we can't account for or value that's sort of being transferred one way or another. Just looking at Washington's 40 man, you could argue that they're a better fit for Machado than they are for Harper anymore with Robles, Soto, you know, maybe a Michael Taylor and Adam Eaton platoon to keep Eaton healthy and, um, you know, uh, put Taylor in a position to do offensive damage against lefties uh, Anthony Rendon is a free agent next offseason. Uh, so, like, bringing on Machado to play short, Trey Turner can kind of play uh, all over the place. You've got Ryan Zimmerman aging at first base, Rendon possibly moving on a year from now. I just prefer Machado defensively at third uh, much more than I do at shortstop. I guess you could argue that any shortstop is just better defensively at third base than they are at shortstop because it's easier to play. Um, but, like, Manny Machado's a uh, strong desire to play shortstop would be a deterrent for me if I were running a team. I just I don't think he has. Um, now you can hide the lateral range with better positioning, but I just I think that he has really slowed down uh, into his mid twenties compared to where he was several years ago, and I just miss him playing incredible defense at third base. If tomorrow MLB announced, hey, we're gonna have robot umpires calling balls and strikes, do you call Bryce Harper and say, uh, do you want to catch? Because it doesn't really matter anymore if you're behind from a receiving standpoint. You still have this arm strength. Um, You'd be the best hitting catcher in baseball by like a wide margin. Uh, Do you think that that's insane? Could this guy be a catcher five years from now if robot umpires become a thing? You know, that question reminds me of being on a podcast with Sestouli when I think I know what's coming, and then a robot ump's question comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I guess the I guess the receiving would be one major thing, because that's, you know, there's so so many reps that he's behind in, in being competent at that. And then obviously him having a huge arm, that's always going to be there. And so he's, he's he, he still is competitive in that area. I guess the question would be, is the sort of squatting and taking foul balls off the shoulder and all that kind of stuff, is all of that still right. present wear and tear is that still enough that the sort of decision that was made like seven years ago or 10 years ago however long ago it was that the Nats moved him 
is that still enough to keep him from going back there? Because you're probably not going to see the five win guy if you stick him back there. You're probably going to get more of that three win guy, but it's going to be, I guess, a more valuable spot. Or, or maybe it'll be the three win hitter, but it, he'll have different positional guy. I don't know. There's, I, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I would imagine that teams are so risk averse they wouldn't. Because imagine right. if he gets like foul ball off the shoulder and is out for the year. Like not a fireable offense, but it starts getting down that line where all the fans want to kill you. I'd be very interested in in that sort of uh, line of development for him if their robot umps were ever to become a thing. Well, look which out I hope they Hernandez while you're pushing this robot umpires narrative. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not a big fan. I think the the unintended consequences of robot umps are um, much greater than anyone is really anticipating. Um, the, this is a that's another show. That's why the uh, uh, iRobot was about when the when the umpire robots found out that the best way to call balls and strikes is to kill all humans. <laughs> True. <laughs> that's when things got really out of hand. <laughs> Who are some of the other free agents that you think are interesting? Who else do you uh, do you want to dive into a little bit deeper? I was actually talking to an agent today about Corbin versus Keuchel because uh, it looks like they're going to get like the third and fourth high steals and are the other two guys that seem sure to get over $50 million. Um, Corbin, like there's some obvious, um, some obvious things to be scared of given that he's already had a Tommy John. He's coming off uh, a six win season when he had never been above three before. So you're, you're kind of definitely paying a retail price and he's thrown over 50% breaking balls, which is obviously a positive in that he's found a way to optimize what he's doing and pitch in today's game. But I would imagine you'd rather him have the same stats while throwing 25% breaking balls. If we're trying to project the health of a guy that's already had elbow surgery. Um, so that's obviously like yeah, and his velos velos down. Yeah, so there's obviously some some you know risk factors there, but also you're getting a lefty that's not 30 that just put up a six win season um, that has some pretty good stuff and has just figured out like how to pitch with what he has. So it's like in another way, it's like well, this guy's definitely going to be good unless his arm explodes for the next two or three years. You'll, you'll just kind of take what you get on the back end, and he has enough stuff that this guy could turn into Andrew Miller if he's not a starter anymore. Like if he gets hurt and doesn't have the stamina, like you can put this guy in a different role. Whereas Keuchel is averaging 89 miles an hour as a 30 year old, uh, and you could argue whether he's even the kind of guy that you're going to have pitch a lot of innings in a playoff race. Is he just an innings inning guy that gets you to the playoffs and then is? You know, it's not Lance Lynn where he's going to get kind of kicked out of the rotation and barely used out of the bullpen. But is he like a, a key factor in your playoff run? And there's like some chatter that he might get more money than Corbin. And he's two years older and, you know, basically had an average um, strikeout rate in the big leagues right now. And you're trying to get him for four or five years from now. And if his velo backs up or his command backs up or he gets hurt, like you don't have any more place to put him. So I would lean toward Corbin and just try to reach those high highs now and deal with it on the back end. And it sounds like that's where the market is, but I'm, I'm curious how you would approach that. I'm very fascinated by what's going to happen with Keiko because this is the type of pitcher that is sort of starting to disappear. But for that reason, he might become more valuable. Uh, if you're a team and, and I think you would agree with this, that an increasing number of teams are looking at modifying the way they deploy pitching. Uh, I someone with the team told me today that their team is considering having three bulk innings starters uh, like Keiko, like 180 plus inning starters, uh, and then the other two days of the rotation piggybacking uh, long relievers or like some sort of interesting thing. Uh, and so teams that I think are in position to compete for the next couple of years. And who are looking at that they need arms like Keuchel who will give you 170, 180 uh, competent innings 
for the next two, three years, uh, even if this guy becomes essentially like a back-end starter towards the rear of the deal, uh, it's still a, com- a commodity that's that's less uh, common, uh, more difficult to develop than the uh, reliever, even the one who is going uh, to more than three outs at a time. So, so you're so, basically saying that this, this bulk Keuchel guy frees you up to take this more aggressive strategy in deploying your pitchers, thus essentially making every other pitcher on the staff better because you, you then have the small amount of innings enough to have a better pitcher out there rather than have another like Jeff Supon guy out there. Right, and I think that pitchers like like it'll be the way teams develop pitching and decide to uh, try to con- when they decide to cut bait and just make guys into relievers so that they yield some sort of value. Uh, when to make that decision is uh, it's going to be fascinating to see team to team what they decide because I think that there is probably a correct answer. Uh, but you need guys like this around in order to enable that sort of strategy. Uh, and obviously, like there are even greater implications as far as like things like arbitration are concerned down the line. But again, that's like another episode of the show. Um, uh, the next guys I want to talk about was, I mean, not to go down every single guy in order, uh, but we just talked right. about the top four guys. And then the next five are actually guys that are we, we've already talked about a little bit. And that you have Donaldson, Brantley, and Pollock, three guys that look like they were going to be premium parts of this class that have all have some measure of uh, injury issues that have sort of eaten away at their upside. But the sort of upside of like that five or six one guy is presumably still in there for all three of them. Yeah. Then you have Grandall and Lowry. Grandall, who's the youngest of the group, who's a catcher, who's a good framer, who had a good season at the plate this year, and then basically just doesn't literally catch the ball enough and then had a terrible postseason. So you got to try to get that out of, that taste out of your mouth. And then Jed Lowry, who in the capsule I wrote, uh, essentially, if you take his two platform years, has a better case than Ben Zobris did when he got his four-year deal from the Cubs. But Lowry basically has only been good for two years. So he's probably going to get you know two or three years instead of the four that Zobris got. You could argue that he is the best of these five guys, but I had a lot of trouble trying to rank these guys. Yeah, and it's weird that two of the top seven guys on the list are players that teams did not want to offer uh, qualifying offers to. Donaldson was dealt uh, presumably because Toronto was fearful that he might take the qualifying offer. Brantley was not offered one, which is, uh, for those that don't know, it's one year, $17.9 million is the, the qualifying offer. The Diamondbacks did offer one to Pollock. What are the chances that he takes it? Like, this is the type of guy who you would think benefits from a short-term deal. You come back, you're healthy for a season, and you re-enter the market and get a long-term deal. Do you think anyone beats uh, one year, eighteen million for Pollock? Do you think would you, if your Pollock and his camp is two years, thirty million, uh, better for you than? an $18 million qualifying offer and then trying to re-enter the market in a year? Because it would seem to me that like the Diamondbacks, you know, the Goldschmidt situation, they picked up his team option. He'll be a free agent at, after next year. Um, they've already kind of bandied about the notion of a rebuild. Um, they've re-signed Eduardo Escobar to a three-year deal that's that's very team-friendly. Three years, $7 million a year. If the, the team goes belly up uh, and they want to rebuild in the middle of next season or after next season then this is a versatile infielder with a cheap two-year deal. Like, there's team control. Like, they can get value for that guy still, even if, if they want to rebuild after a year. So, like, that was a nice flexible deal. Uh, but it seems like the Diamondbacks are in a position to do this thing one more year in this the Goldschmidt era. Um, 
so that's that's got to be appealing for Pollock too. So like, I don't know. What do you think? You have three years, eighteen million annually projected for Pollock. Uh, I don't know. I think I thought there was a chance he might end up. He's like the most likely guy to take the qualifying offer for me. Like, just the everything about the situation uh, seems to point that way more so than all these other guys. I think that would probably come down to more of a recruiting pitch from the Arizona guys saying, hey, you know, come back one year. It's good for you. It's good for us. We're all going to compete. We're going to have Greenkey. We're going to have Goldschmidt. You know, we'll, we'll either keep or trade, you know, Jake Lamb for some other stuff. Like, let's keep this thing going. I think for Pollock, I think he could pretty easily get two years at, you know, 16 to 20, like somewhere in the range of what the qualifying offer would be. And I have him getting three just because I think he's attractive enough Um because, I mean, if you use sort of the linear dollar per war, you're basically paying for a two-win guy, which, like, he's been hurt a lot lately, and he's still been a two-win guy. So it seems like a pretty safe bet, and you can get a guy with, you know, presumably five-win upside is probably still in there if he can stay healthy for a whole year. Um, you can get that kind of guy for only on a three. You can basically guarantee $50 million and get that kind of guy, which obviously that one year would pay for the entire contract. So I think he'll be attractive to teams like Atlanta that are trying to do like a moderate approach to spending money as opposed to going nuts. Like I think some other teams may do. Um, I think uh, Michael Brantley was a little, was interesting that it, it sounded like the rationale as reported to the media is that Cleveland could not afford him accepting the offer and then them not being able to trade him until into the season, because that would put them so far over their budget that they, there'd be like some crazy crunch. Like they basically don't have the payroll space to do what would obviously be, um, a, a smart move to offer. A, I mean, we have I have him getting three times sixteen, and they didn't want to offer him one times eighteen. Like they were scared he was going to take it. So like yeah. that, that obviously should have happened. It almost thinks that I guess they added enough payroll in trying to make a playoff run that it precluded them from being able to take this very reasonable gamble that I think most would see as not even really a gamble. Uh, and in the intro, I mentioned I thought that uh, the number one most likely guy to take the qualifying offers from outside of this group. It's uh, Ryu. Is, Hyun Jin okay. Ryu with, with the Dodgers. Hyun Jin Ryu. Yeah, because I think he's, like, if he hits the open market with nothing, uh, with no qualifying offer, I think he's probably, like, three times 11. And so he can get over halfway there in one one year. And I think the Dodgers would like to have him on a one-year deal just to, you yeah. know, sort of have him prove it. So it seems like that's beneficial to both sides. And then I think Grandal, depending on what he wants to do, I don't think he's going to get anywhere near 15 uh, per year on a multi-year deal. So if he's just trying to get, like, the, you know, the most money in the rest of his career, I think taking it this year and then hitting the market again next year, maybe with a little better uh, track record of catching the ball and having the you know fatigue factor lessen late in the season, he would stand to sort of do what you're saying with Pollock and do like a prove it deal and then get you know four times fifteen or get some version of that Russell Martin deal next year when he's 31. Mm. But yeah, I, th- I just think Pollock has a little too robust of a market to take that when I think he can get the same AAV. And I think the odds of him putting up a five win season this year when he's on the qualifying offer and then hitting the market with no qualifying offer and getting some huge you know hundred million dollar deal, I mean that seems pretty unlikely. It's probably like what five percent, ten percent chance. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably pretty low. I don't you know. But as I'm saying, um, if there's a recruitment aspect to it, like, hey, we're going to bring the band back together for one year, you're going to make the same money you'd make on your multi-year deal as long as your knee doesn't explode, like, you're going to get the same contract. Like, I could see that working, but it, it would be them convincing him it was the good idea. I don't think it's objectively the best idea. It'll be interesting to see. Cleveland is losing Lonnie Chisenhall and uh, Brantley via free agency. So I assume that the, their outfield next year is going to be a lot of platooning, uh, Leonis Martin is, uh, is still, um, I think, Brad, Arb eligible still. Brad, Brad Zimmer and then, I guess, Kim Yeah, Bradley back. Zimmer healthy. 
They acquired Oscar Mercado from the Cardinals at the trade deadline, so that's like an upper-level outfielder who should be ready fairly soon. And Jason Kipnis is, has been playing the outfield, and um, you know they've got Yu Chang, uh, it, it, who's here in Fall League again, and he's just about ready. He looks pretty good out here again. Um, so there's there's upper-level talent that they can backfill on the, the backfill uh, on the infield if they want to move some of these guys to an outfield corner. So, like, there's still roster flexibility here uh, and enough talent that they're going to compete. Although I do think it's weird that they've there, there are rumors in the media that Corey Kluber can be had for the right um, for the right price, which is kind of a bummer. Well, I think um, the, their issue is that they have some real holes in the outfield without any compelling uh, spots to fill, and they've got you know only so much more time left on Ramirez and Lindor and all these guys. So you want to try to make the most of this with no money, trading your controllable pitching, which they have, what, like six or seven really good ones. Yeah. That would seem to be the smart move because you can't just – I'm not even sure they can go out and afford to get Pollock even though they've got Miller and Allen and Brantley all coming off the books. I mean it sounds like they're getting out of Miller and Allen at the right time. Imagine if they would have given them both big extensions last year thinking we're going to keep the band together and then, oh boy, look what happened. Yeah, um, that would have been disastrous. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think they uh, were fortunate slash smart in having all these deals come off the books at the same time. You would say that the benefit of having Brantley be good this year, obviously contributing to a playoff run, is that you could get a qualifying offer out of him, and then, of course, they couldn't because they cut a little too close. Um, and then I, I think Jed Lowry, like, again, you could argue that he is the fifth best player in this market, having put up, what, I think eight wins the last two years and playing multiple yeah. positions. Like, you could argue that he's what everyone's saying Pollock could be if he stays healthy. He's just older. Um and you know that and hasn't been that good for a long time, and then just suddenly was good. Uh, so I, 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 yeah, I don't know. It, it this seems like a group that is very hard to separate now, and I guess we just talk through it and still have trouble separating it. Uh, <laughs> so we're just really spinning our wheels here. Uh, why, don't, why don't you pick out a couple more guys, and we'll uh, and then I'll, I'll talk about some of the rumors I've heard about what what teams look like they're going to be. Okay. Doing. So you say Kikuchi is probably someone who we should discuss because it's not someone who most of the people listening to this podcast have ever seen pitch even on TV. This is another Boris client. You know, uh, we talk about uh, Boris Corp finding talent to represent uh, on this podcast. I think we have before. Here's a Japanese guy uh, that Boris Corp represents. So uh, he'll be posted uh, by the time this podcast comes out. I, I anticipate that uh, the Cebu Lions. Uh, Yusei Kikuchi's NPB team will have already had a press conference that says, hey, we're going to post this guy. Um, this is the, I wrote Kikuchi's capsule for the, for the piece. So I've been speaking with uh, teams and uh, folks who have seen him in Japan. And I know everyone has different definitions for like number one starter, number two starter, et cetera, et cetera. But I was surprised to hear that uh, a lot of people think that this guy, if everything clicks, could be a number two. Um, 92-93 from the left side, plus-plus athlete, uh, will touch 96, has been, has maxed out at 98, uh, mostly 2-3, to will touch a 6 during during the course of a start. Two-plus breaking balls, slider and curveball, both plus. Change-up is average, doesn't really use it very much. Uh, it's a 6-foot lefty with like a high three-quarters arm slot, so from like a fastball efficacy perspective, uh, it plays well with the two breaking balls. It's like a flat up in the zone fastball um, and does all the little stuff, fields his position well, holds runners, that sort of thing, um, but has had multiple shoulder issues over the last several years. Like going back eight years, he has had shoulder issues like three times. Um, so uh, it's it's 
going to be an interesting thing. This is one of the youngest guys on the market, other than Harper and Machado. This is the youngest guy. He's 27. Uh, there aren't many free agents even under 30. So what do you, what do you have on this guy? Uh, and then as far as like a contract is concerned uh, and the posting system and all, and all that stuff, where do you think uh, this might be headed? So my, I guess the stuff I got on Kikuchi was a, not different. It, it was more like 55 stuff with at least average command that will flash you some sixes here and there. But some guys said, I mean, you can look at the stats that like the strikeout rate's been higher in the past. That they think he may be, you know, not on the way down, but like he sort of reached his peak. Um, and that saying it's you know above average stuff with you know say solid average command that it's a uh, you know like a three if it works, a four if it doesn't. Um, it, like I guess a little bit lower than what you got, but not that much. And I, I think it's probably somewhere between Corbin and Keuchel in terms of are you getting bulk innings, or are you getting a guy that can really sort of make an impact and then be a bullpen guy if things don't work out stamina-wise. Um, I think he's probably somewhere between those two. Um, and it sounds like the because of the age, it's probably four or five years, and then because there's going to be a 15 to 20% premium on top that, that goes back to the Cebu Lions, you know, it'll be somewhere in the 10 to 14 mil a year because that'll turn into, um, you know, 12 to 15 a year, which is probably about the going rate for this kind of guy where there's, you know, some concerns, like you're saying, there's been some shoulder stuff, um, you're not positive what you're going to get, but it sounds like it's a pretty good bet that you're going to get some continued value here. Yeah, the the most difficult things for teams to uh, try to get a grasp on is how do Japanese pitchers respond to the difference in you know your pitch you pitch once a week in Japan, not once every fifth day, and obviously the the traditional notion that you, you throw every fifth day is sort of. Uh, in flux right now, perhaps a team that is interested in Kikuchi doesn't even want that sort of outcome. Like there might be a uh, different usage here to try to guard against uh, this perception that pitching once every fifth day instead of once a week is different. And I would agree that it is. Uh, we see the difference in in college arms. You know, college arms go from throwing once a week to throwing every fifth day, and a lot of times uh, the stuff ticks down just because. Uh, of that little extra usage. So, yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite guys just because so much is unknown. And um, and he's younger, and I just I, – I like when uh, – I like new talent. This is just new talent who's going to be inserted right into the, uh, into the big leagues. The last guy that I found very interesting is somebody that I guess we both wrote capsules on that is the one guy outside the top 25 that I thought was worth a full write-up was Garrett Richards. Um, well, why don't you talk? Cause I, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Okay. Uh, this guy has crazy stuff. It is like among the best stuff in all of baseball. Uh, 95, 96 with a freakish spin rate for that kind of velocity. And then the spin rate on both of the breaking balls is also elite. It's like 2,800 on the slider uh, even though it's an upper 80s slider. And it's like, you know, Seth Lugo's curveball is 3,000 RPMs. Garrett Richards' curveball is like 3,400 RPM. Um, and, yeah, we can quibble about spin rate and how much it, it's, it means and stuff. This guy is nasty stuff. Like, it's inarguable. He's also been hurt a ton. Uh, knee surgery, one torn UCL that they did a PRP for. Uh, another torn UCL that he just had a Tommy John for. He's had uh, he had a hamstring injury this year as well. He's had shoulder stuff. Like it's been all over the place. 
injury wise for Garrett Richards, and he's not going to pitch until 2020. So, what do you do with this guy? Like, what what are teams going to do with this guy? What's the deal? I would say that the deal is some teams. Uh, I would even say specifically like Houston. I don't know specifically, but I would imagine that they see him as, oh, if we can get this guy healthy, he will be Lance McCullers. Like, it's all the same stuff. It's you know not so much on the changeup. Although obviously McCullers developed the changeup later. I think you know Richards uh, probably could. Um, but hasn't really needed it. And then the command is like, you know, never been fantastic, but it's good enough to make those, you know, fastball and two breaking balls work. Uh, and you would basically be paying to rehab him this year to as like a down payment on getting his performance in 2020. And then I would imagine because uh, one of the things I, I wrote in the capsule, because rebuilding teams often are, we've got 20 million to spend. We're not trying to win this year. And we're not looking to give out five-year deals to anybody. How can we spend money in a way that will give us a positive ROI? And it's go get some 33-year-old reliever on a two-year deal, trade him midway through the year, and you're basically buying prospects, which is what they would like to do with their money. Um, that's sort of the established thing for rebuilding teams to do. Garrett Richards is now falling in Nathan Uvalde's footsteps. Uvalde, obviously, by the Rays, where they did this exact thing, paid him for a year when he didn't pitch. He came back, pitched really well. They traded him, and they got Jalen Beeks in addition to half a season of good performance for, I think it was like 5 or $6 million. It wasn't that much. Um, that's what smart small market teams do when they don't have like a hole to fill. They just have some money to spend. Um, so now you've got rebuilding teams, small market teams, and contending teams that think they might need a Lance McCullers a year from now. All three of them want this guy, and the guarantee is going to be under $20 million, I would bet, which means every team can afford it. So you could argue, I mean, it's not going to be all 30, but you could argue that all 30 teams have a compelling reason to be like, calling his agent, be like, hey, we got about 12 mil for him for these two years. Uh, we'll give you, you know, three or four million on a buyout for a year three option, um, and we'll put in some incentives where if you hit all the uh, escalators and stuff, you could get up to $30 million in a three year deal. Because if he's that good, I don't think you'd mind paying him thirty million on a three-year deal. Um, I think that sort of up to thirty million, other than like Oakland and Tampa and Pittsburgh, I think even that would be pretty doable for them. This guy fits for everybody, and coming on the heels of Eovaldi being so good and Richards being, I think, uh, even a higher upside version of Eovaldi, I-, I think he is super interesting in that every team wants him and essentially every team can afford him, and that scouts go nuts because they see two, two or three sevens. And yeah. progressive teams go nuts because they see insane spin rates. And I think every uh, uh, medical staff sees, hey, we could probably figure this out, right? Like, we're not so stupid that we can't figure this out when he's just kind of always been hurt. So it, odds are he's not going to be completely healthy. But it's super intriguing to basically see 30 teams battling it out for a guy where it's, it's just like who can, who can put forth the best pitch. Because I would imagine there be a lot of teams at the same number where he gets to decide, like, what sort of team does he want to do this for? And that leads into the last thing I want to touch on, which was the teams that uh, are not the traditional big spenders that may be ready to break out of this, uh, out of that sort of middle market um, mentality to to spend some real money or more than is expected this year. Um, because obviously coming off of last offseason, there were a bunch of teams that seem to just not be interested in spending money at all to get better. And I think that's going to change this year. And I, I, one of the guys I was talking to today was saying, well, the way that that happens is when you get an emotional owner who's going to say, hey, we need to be good, pound the table, and tell, give someone some marching orders. Like, hey, whatever amount of money we need to get to X amount of wins or whatever, do it. That's how you get some irrational offers and guys getting signed early and teams saying, hey, we need to sign three pitchers. So we're going to get one in the first two weeks and kind of get this ball rolling. Uh, you already talked about the Padres. Uh, I think A.J. Preller and Ron Fowler are seen as among the most aggressive, probably top five. Um, and I think they see they think their window is opening. We'll, we'll see if that's the case. But they're going to have a lot of cost-controlled talent coming up, which will sort of further free up money where 
we don't have to necessarily sign the the Julius Chassin, um, Trevor Cahill, those sorts of guys. Like, just get a veteran that you hope is good. In both cases, those were pretty good uh, choices. Just to fill out the roster, you're going to have your Lucchese's and your Lowers and some guys coming up. Like, let's take a swing at some guy with some upside. You know, maybe let's go take a look at um, Keichel or uh, Corbin if, like, the market comes down a little bit. Uh, do, you know, do you try to trade Myers? Um, they, they obviously sound like they're interested in DeGrom and Syndergaard, but it sounds like they're not going to be available. So where does that sort of interest bring them on other players? Um, you've got Cincinnati, as you mentioned. Uh, it sounds like ownership is getting a little antsy uh, and would like to, specifically on the pitching side, uh, pick things up. So I think they may be in the market for basically everybody below the Corbin Keichel range, uh, starting with Eovaldi, Morton, Kimbrell, all those guys moving their way down. Um, which I don't think people were necessarily expecting. And it sounds like the Twins were also uh, maybe more on the value shopping end, but probably with more money to spend. And I think uh, think they're a little closer than maybe some others uh, would think. And the last one would be Atlanta, where it sounds like we believe they're going to be more as a moderate stance of let's spend some money, let's fill some holes, but let's not sign a five-year deal, let's not sign a 10-year deal, let's not trade a bunch of prospects for two or three players let's just make a couple medium moves and like let the core grow on its own and put a couple pieces around them. I think they're probably going to go in that direction, but if they really wanted to sign Machado and Harper, uh, I think they could probably make that happen. And obviously other than maybe Philly and then the traditional huge markets, I don't think there's that many teams that could make that happen if they really wanted to. Yeah. I mean, on the Padres thing, I do think this is what it looks like when their window starts to open. I think the Dodgers are just always going to be good, but uh, Arenado is a free agent in two years. Who knows what Colorado is going to look to do. It would seem like, the combination of Ryan McMahon and Garrett Hampson and Brendan Rodgers, like there is talent that should be ready over the next couple of years. I could see them continuing to be competitive, but I think that situation is just in general more volatile than a lot of baseball because of the play environment, etc. Already said my piece about the D-backs. I think it's there's one more year left for them to really you know, make a run before they have to think about rebuilding. And the Giants, I just think, are quite far behind right now in sort of the early stages of a rebuild. Um, and so they're just by logic behind where the Padres are in their rebuild because they've uh, been doing one for several years. And, so, and you could argue that yeah. Madison Bumgarner will uh, join uh, Rio Muto on the trade market as the sort of prizes that are looked at alongside these free agent yeah. prices trying to decide which one do we want to pay for because I don't think they can trade Posey with all that money guaranteed as a face of the franchise. But if Bumgarner's going to walk and they're going to hire a sounds like more progressive GM that guy's probably going to see things are necessary for a rebuild. And so obviously giving Bumgarner some huge deal when he, you know, it sounds like he's pitched pretty well, but obviously he hasn't been on the field quite as much as you'd like. Uh, that's pr- it's probably similar to the Goldschmidt in Arizona situation. Like, oh, we'd like to have him, but this is not the direction we're going in the short term. So we're going to let him walk, take take our comp pick or trade him, and then, um, you know, try to build another thing up in the next couple of years. Because obviously you have enough money in San Francisco that you can you can buy a couple pieces when you need it, as opposed to waiting for them to organically appear all at once. All right, and for our next topic, uh, we're going to go lean pretty heavily on Eric to talk about some of the talent he's seen in the Arizona Fall League and hopefully not have too many dogs barking in the background. So, Eric, why don't you talk about the just sort of general makeup of the league and sort of what kind of talent there was this year, and then we can kind of run through each team. Sure, yeah. Uh, This is always – the Fall League is always a hitter's league, uh, both statistically and as far as talent is concerned. Uh, and that's just sort of a function of what the league serves as, right? Like most of the pitchers who are here are here because they were hurt during the year and they need to pick up innings. Um, and so like as far as the talent is concerned, uh, like if there's not – if they weren't hurt, then they're they're here because the team doesn't mind if they're maybe pushing them a little too hard. 
So there's like a selection bias about the talent here. And, and there's also uh, like some like non-prospect arms that turned into fringe oh, yeah. relief prospects that they would want to get a better look at. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of that sort of thing. Like, who are we adding to our 40-man and protecting from the Rule 5? Well, this guy had a much better year than we anticipated, so let's send him to the Fall League to sort of stress test it and see if it's real. Um, and then or some we team... consolidate, so mm-hmm. let's send some guys to showcase them for trade, the Fall League. And then some teams that want to hide a guy for the Rule 5 draft will not send him there and keep a talented pitcher that people don't really know about from getting on the right. radar. So there's a lot of... And you also, I think, have... Like, I'm just looking at one of the rosters has Rob Kaminsky on it. It's like, oh, there's some guys that were prospects that maybe they're trying a new pitch or trying a new role and, like, trying to figure out a way to regain what they once had. There's just It's sort of like Land of Misfit Toys, whereas the hitters, it's obviously not as much of a stretch to have them play for an extra month or two as, obviously, the pitchers on, you know, more right. of a defined work schedule throughout the regular season. Who did you want to talk about first? Uh, I think I have it alphabetically. So I got Glendale. Glendale? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh... Like most teams, Glendale doesn't have a whole lot of pitching. I haven't put a, f- a 40. Uh, uh, I think I have two 40-pluses on Glendale Arms, and everybody else is a 40 or worse. Um, Jordan Sheffield and Zach Birdie are the two guys who coming into the fall I really wanted to see because they were two guys who were hurt during the summer. Birdie was recovering from Tommy John and Sheffield. I forget what Sheffield's was. I have it written somewhere, but not off the top of my head. Um, both of them, their velo uh, is down. Birdie has been shut down with fatigue. Uh, this is the only pure reliever we had on our top 100 last year. He was like 99 to 102 with a plus slider and changeup uh, here in Fall League. And during the summer when I saw him when he first came back, he's like 93, 95. So huge downtick in the velocity. Which isn't always uh, like a huge negative right off the bat. You kind of wait until next spring to be worried if it's still not there. Right, but it has been. He was back sometime during the summer. Like I saw this guy in the AZL. And he was ninety three, ninety five. So he has been this for like several months now. And he's definitely not a top one hundred guy if he's three to five. No, not anymore. Um, Jordan Sheffield uh, is another guy who was like upper nineties, touch hundred. It's more like ninety three, ninety six, touch a seven now. Uh, but it's a legit plus changeup. I still feel really good about him in a bullpen role because the stuff is so good. Uh, there's just not quite as much velocity there as there was at times over the last few years. Um, and then, you know, the the interesting position players on this group were, they're the guys who are famous when they come in here, um, like Florial, Esteban Florial with the Yankees. Uh, and we, this is the guy who we get told most often is too low on our overall list, right? Would you characterize that as true? By, by scouts is, or fans? Uh, by people with teams. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I've gotten high and low on him. Oh yeah, that's true. Like he is a divisive player in general. Like from a physical tool standpoint, he is remarkable. But it's, I don't think he's going to hit. A lot of people don't think he's ever going to hit. Um, the right question to ask is, does he hit enough that the rest of the stuff plays? The power, the speed, and all that stuff. He's got an eight arm. Um, yeah, I think he's the kind of guy that um, may be liked more by progressive teams because he'll put up a big exit velo and. Depending on how you sort of parse the the parts of the hit tool, is it you know swing at these sorts of pitches, hit these sorts of pitches, etc. And he's got sort of the speed and defensive profile, so it's very easy to imagine this guy being a three, four, five win guy. Whereas I could see more traditional scouts seeing his swing and miss and kind of low energy type and kind of get off him. Would, would you say that's generally accurate? I guess so, and I continue to think it's totally bizarre that as soon as we 
can measure these physical tools that suddenly the people who were off of the toolsy scouty types years ago, like five years ago, uh, are now in love with like the Franchi Cordero type guys because like, now we can like the quantify the power. Like the first getting off Domingo Santana. Right. <laughs> seemed to be an anti-stats guy until you have exit velos. Right. Uh, so yeah, Floreal is one of those guys where it's like you spend all fall trying to refine how you feel about the guy and I'll probably end the fall feeling the same way, just that I don't think he's going to hit. And he had a game um, during the year and it sounds like both of yeah. our extended looks of him in person have not been good and that the positive vibes have been off of what other people have told us. Correct. Uh, and then, like, there's just a bunch of interesting individuals on this roster. Like, Ryan McKenna had a big year. And anytime someone has a huge year and they come to Fall League, I do want to see them and to kind of decide how real it is. This is a guy who I do buy. Uh, he's an eight-runner. He's really good in center field. There's gap power. He's going to make the most of it. Anytime a ball sort of trickles into the gap, he's on second base. So I really like McKenna. Uh, Luis Robert with the I, White Sox. One quick been, note on McKenna: the some oh, of guys told me that there's a chance he may play second base in the future too. So it could be one of those wow. super utility profiles. That'd be very interesting. Yeah, it makes sense too with Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes sort of occupying. You know, the two of those guys sort of occupying center field uh, with Adam Jones likely to depart. So, um, yeah, I could see how that makes sense. But also, I think McKenna's the best defensive center fielder among those three names. So I'm not sure that's great, but. Um, but I could see why they're trying to do that. Um, Lou Bob has been fine. Not really worried about him. He was terrible in the fall stars game, but has otherwise been just fine there. Are you still, you have worried, to, to, still worried about the contact and there's still huge physical tools, but you just haven't yeah. a big enough sample to have a strong feeling. The contact issues come from the bat path. Like he really wants to turn on stuff in and he just can't like, he's just not going to get the bat head there. Uh, so uh, he is approachable from a uh, pitching standpoint, um, but I think that he's going to see enough mistakes, and he does so much other stuff. Like He's really good in center field. I'm not worried about him in center. Uh, and there's a ton of power, so I feel pretty good about him still, um, but I, I think there might be some bat-to-ball limitations. And then, it sounds uh, like Mokata. Yeah, but I would say... Yes. In, in a broad um, sense, not like, yeah, specifically. Right. But I do think that there are some similar issues. Yeah. The way Moncada swings is also sort of an issue for him. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of parallels. It's not a perfect mechanical parallel, but yes, it's conceptually the same. Uh, Yu Chang, who you and I like, continues to look really good out here. He's playing third base. Um, with Lindor at shortstop in Cleveland. This guy's going to play second or third, and he's fine at both spots. Obviously, you prefer the bat at shortstop, but we just think he's a solid average everyday player. He's been on our 100 for a while, and he's going to continue to be. Uh, Tyro Estrada was a guy you and I both liked last year. He got shot and had to have like multiple surgeries to remove a bullet from his leg, and he does not look the same. So I don't know if that's rust or if the surgery really took away some of the explosion in his lower half, but he just does not look like the same player in any shape or form. So I mean, we thought he might be more bummer. like a really good utility guy before all this. So now it's just like, I guess, a lower end sort of utility guy. Yeah. And yeah, then my, and that's my, kind of guy was interesting was Basabe. Has he... Oh, Basabe. Yeah. So, okay. This is an interesting uh, way. Do you remember Basabe's uh, home run off of Hunter Green in the Futures game? Yep. Hit the ball real far. 
Do you remember the sort of quality of everyone's batting practice during the Futures game? Yep. Also hit the ball so far. Uh, I have seen a ton of the Futures game players take BP here in Arizona. And there are whispers throughout baseball about the balls that they were using for the high school home run derby and for BP ending the game during the Futures game. Yep. Uh, I remember a conversation and, we had where we said, well, Trammell demonstrated 70 raw power, but do we really think it's 70 raw power? Because that doesn't really sync up with what we've known about him. Um, so after watching and comparing several of the same players between the Futures game and now, I would say that uh, visually – uh, it's evidence that this is true, that something was going on with the Futures game balls. Basabe has not looked super great here. Um, I'm inclined to just sort of toss this look at him out. I still really like a lot of what he brings to the table. It's hard for someone with good secondary skills to have uh, those on display when they're only playing twice a week. Basabe has gone like at times a whole week without playing, playing every three days, you know, like he'll play three days in a row and then have off for several days. And then he'll play three days in a row and have off for several days. Um, he has not played in consecutive days since Halloween. So, you know, it's hard to get a look at guys when their playing time is kind of erratic out here. And so Basabi does not look great, but I'm kind of just going to toss it. Yeah. And he, he seems like more, I mean, I've never been nuts about him. It seems like it's more of a tools with some secondary skills kind of, Low-end everyday guy might be a little bit more, but we'll kind of wait and see how it develops. Yeah, that's probably correct. All right, moving on to Mesa. Uh, I'm looking at this pitching, and it is also not inspiring a lot of hope. <laughs> Who's your favorite guy? To, it seems like a lot of hard-throwing reliever types. Yeah, so there's some weirdos. Like Brett Hanowish from the Angels has been anywhere between 92 and 101 with the fastball here in Arizona. Um, he's been more in the mid to upper nineties of late and he's a plus plus extension guy. Yep. Um, guy I liked out of the draft that was, I yeah. want to say 89, 91 in high school and then was a little better at Stanford and now is even a little better now. So the delivery's not great. It's well below command, but it's just the fastball alone is pretty freakish. So I think there's probably something there. One more uh, angels reliever. Uh, how's Procopio? He was another one of my guys. I'm into Procopio. This is the yeah. 10th round senior sign. Yep. I like Procopio. He can spin it. Um, the fastball plays. It's like it's your flat up in the zone sort yep. of fastball. It's absolutely that type of. Uh, He's a track man guy. I can give you yep, that. Yep. He's a track man guy. Um, Darwin's in Hernandez <laughs> with Boston. I didn't know you, uh, were, you were Arnold. <laughs> we had. Uh, well, I guess it was pretty bad Jerry Remy then. Oh. Um, <laughs> That wins in Hernandez. Yeah, that's okay. I just wanted I got to say time. Yeah. There you go. Um, we had a 45 future value on this guy last year because we just thought, hey, it's monster velo and spin from the left side. And Gamets so loves him. Um, he, that's what he's been out here. Like 94, 98. The breaking ball has been inconsistent, but it's plus. He's been dominant in some outings and really struggled to throw strikes in others. Like, He's just a dominant lefty reliever. I think if you move this guy to the pen, uh, the stuff could tick up, and he might be like a Jose Alvarado type of guy. Um, I guess the guy who I'd say I'm skeptical of their performance out here is the Cubs righty Eric Leal, mm -hmm. who has still not allowed a run in 17 and a third, five starts. Uh, he does have a plus breaking ball, but he's like 87, 90. I'm just not sure that it's really going to – play in the big leagues 
but he is totally carved out here. Every, um, yeah, like, I feel, like what percentage of guys that are like this end up having like multiple war in their career? Would you say it's got to be pretty low? It's yeah. got to be pretty low. I'm thinking like single digit percent. Realistically, he's a two pitch reliever, right? Where he's dumping in this curveball a ton. And at that point, it'll have diminishing returns because he's throwing it so much. So I'm pretty skeptical, but he has had a great fall league. Um, and then the hitters on this team, they're the, some of the high-profile names that you'll see on the roster. But the guys who are sleepers for me are Trent Giambroni with the Cubs, who had a great year. Um, 5'8", 175, multi-positional infielder with like a very athletic swing, like that modern lead with your heel, big uh, leg kick, long stride. Um really getting a lot out of his lower half kind of swing. He's athletic enough to maintain it. Uh, like him better than I did David Bodie here last year. This is, I think this guy can actually play some defense, but there's not as much power as Bodie. Um, Esteban Key Rose is another little guy, 5'7", 175 with Boston, who has Juan Soto's swing, like where he fully extends and kind of sprays uh, lift to all fields. Um, he's been pretty good here. Eli White has also been good. He's more of a utility type for me. Luis Pereira with Oakland is an eight runner with a seven arm. And I don't know if the hands really work in the box, uh, but he's interesting as well. And then, I don't know, there are a bunch of high profile guys on this list, on this roster too, if you're interested in yeah, any of those guys. jump out would be uh, Nico Horner, Jemai Jones, Daz Cameron, Jake Rogers. Those are probably the four that I guess we'd have all of them from 45 to 50 yeah. basically. Yeah, Horner... Horner's still drawing uh, divisive reviews about whether or not he can stay it short because he doesn't throw traditionally. Like yeah. It's not a traditional look to watch him throw. Um, but everything else he does there is fine. Um, he makes routine plays. He hasn't run here as well as he did during the spring. He was a plus-plus runner for me um, in the spring, but I'm not worried about that. His BPs have been really good. I think the Cubs have already tweaked his swing. There's more in-game pop now than there was during the season, um, he's re- he looks really good. The one I'm curious about would be Dahlbeck. Do you feel like he's made progress, or is it still a kind of swing-and-miss guy that can play an okay third base? I think he's fine at third. His footwork there has been pretty good. Uh, his, the arm strength is fine. This was a two-way college guy who was like 90-93 on the mound, so the arm strength at third is totally fine. Um, you know, from a contact perspective, I don't know. I'm still pretty skeptical, but... Uh, it would be historic, right? Like, there's never been a college hitter with this kind of strikeout rate who has succeeded. I so think it's, Ryan Howard was like the one everyone always points to, but there hasn't. Okay. It's because there hasn't been another one. That's the reason that people keep saying Ryan Howard. So, uh, you know, the the offensive bar at third base is not crazy high. So, as long as he stays there, and I think he will, he's got a good chance of being something. He's probably the top prospect in that system at this point, right? Like, I feel much better about his groom are all in that same general area, right? Yeah, I feel much better about his ability to play third base than I do Chavis. And and Cassis, I guess, is probably in that general area. Yeah, Cassis is probably up there, too. Uh, so Peoria, taking a look at that pitching, not a ton of guys jumping out. I would say Kyle Muller would probably be the first guy, the first name I've seen where this guy's probably can be a big league starter of some quality. Yeah, uh, Muller, and you know the whole backstory with Muller. It's yeah, like, I saw him two or three times this year, so I, I, I yeah. kind of saw the, the good, the bad, and, uh, and the medium, I guess. He was... His first couple fastballs of the Fall Stars game were like 95, 96. And then, as has been the case for him uh, all fall, the velo quickly kind of tails into the 91, 93 area. He's had a lot of trouble throwing strikes. Uh, the breaking ball quality kind of comes and goes. And were you getting mostly 50s and a couple 55s here and there? 
Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it's it's just sort of a unique looking delivery, which I think helps really. Like it, I think it helps his stuff play a little bit better because it is sort of a weird look. Would, would you have um, to change up? Because if he, does, he doesn't throw it a whole lot, so you'll get really different looks from game to game. Yeah, I think I got Archie on my lap, so I'm going to have trouble grabbing my notes. Scout on my foot. Yeah. He's really cute. Uh, yeah, I was like 40, 45, uh, a couple 50s throughout the fall. So Yep, that's about what I got. Uh, yeah. the, the other names that interest me on that uh, staff would be White Mills and Adam McCreary. Are there, are there other ones that interest you? Uh, yeah, so those are two weirdo delivery guys as well. McCreary uh, was part of which trade with Anaheim was that? Uh, it was the Chassin, I believe. Okay, so um, yeah, McCreary was on the backfields here uh, with the Angels in Tempe when uh, that trade went down. So it's that was like, like six one nine of... and throws it out of the sky with huge extension. Yeah, super weird. And then Mills is a crazy crossbody side armor. His velo's up. He's been like ninety three, ninety six this fall with his breaking ball. So that's um, he's the one mid round relief prospect that the Mariners haven't traded from recent drafts. Yeah. Um, kind of surprised. I mean, he might be the best one. So he's probably the best one. So we'll see. Uh, I really like Mills just because I know how that guy gets out. It's with his arm slot, the velo, and the breaking ball. McCreary's more of a curiosity. Um, is sort of like a weird uh, release point that you know I don't really know how to how to evaluate the impact that thing's going to have, but it's definitely bizarre. He and Travis Radke, the lefty from San Diego on this roster, both have like these weird uh, extreme vertical release points. Radke's got a two fastball and a seven changeup. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like eighty six, eighty eight. Um, I've seen him up like bump ninety, so really it's like a three fastball, but. Uh, but it's a it's a plus plus changeup. Like it, you cannot differentiate it out of his hand from the fastball, and it just dies. Uh, and it's impossible to see it dying because the the plane mimics the fastball. Like it is really cool to watch him try to get it done. I kind of dig it, but I no one else does. I can't find anybody else out here who's like, yeah, I think that works. Not a lot of two fastballs getting scouts on their side. Um, uh, I'll mention Matt Crook with Tampa Bay. Yep, has it hard again, right? No, he's been eighty-eight, ninety, but it's got oh. insane sink, and it's he's it's missing bats. Uh, and I feel then like Miguel he's Diaz, gone, like, on and off of my radar so many times, I've just lost I, track of what he is now. Yeah, it's he's had a really bizarre career from like if you track his stuff because it was monster stuff in high school. He was drafted, and then the Marlins whacked his medical, so he went to Oregon. Um, blew out. Then he he blew out, uh, and then his stuff was all the way back. And then the Giants took him, and his stuff was really good, but he couldn't throw strikes. And the the Rays were just like, whatever, we'll make this guy into whatever weird sort of Frankenstein. He'll be a Franken- part of this Frankensteinian pitching staff. Um, but yeah, right now he's 88 to 90 with insane sink. He's getting swings and misses with it. And the secondary stuff is like more 55 than it is 60 or better anymore. But he's still pretty interesting. The guys mentioned on the hitting side would be Ronaldo Hernandez, Hudson Potts. Trent Grisham, Buddy Reed. Which one of those four did you like the most? So Ronaldo Hernandez has been here for a week. I've seen – he's been my priority target now the last week because he was just added. Uh, I've seen everybody else, and so I've just been targeting Ronaldo Hernandez. He hasn't even week. turned 21 yet, so watch how you say that. Uh, so, Although his birthday is in two days, so maybe you go celebrate with him. There you go. 
Maybe I'll take. I'm sure that uh, Rafa Nieves will be here to uh, tell us how great he is and take him out for his birthday. Yeah. Um, yeah, like he's really interesting. The swing is sort of bizarre, but there is power. Anytime a guy is inserted like this late, you wonder how much baseball he's been playing for the last month. And so it's probably going to be pretty hard for him to just shake off the rust and immediately be the player that he was all summer. Um, Catching-wise, it has been a mix. He's totally fine catching guys with uh, average stuff. He has had some trouble uh, with horizontal mobility on like breaking balls in the dirt. Um, his arm strength is plus pretty comfortably. Uh, his release is inconsistent. He's like, spiked a bunch of throws down the second base into the ground in like a weird way. So I just think it's, you know, this guy doesn't really have feel right now he's not he's playing twice a week and hasn't played baseball for a month uh so i'll like forgive the little technical stuff because i shouldn't expect that to be in place right now anyway so i'm really just looking at the physical tools power arm strength um and he's got that stuff so he's really interesting i like where we have him on the raise list as far as future value is concerned but he might slide up past a couple people um without the future value changing but so that's sort of where i'm at with him uh, Trent Grisham has been really bad. They've totally changed his swing. He's a dead pole hitter now instead of an all fields doubles guy. Don't think it works for him. Uh, who else did you ask about? Uh, Potts and Buddy Reed. Yeah, Buddy Reed's sort of the same thing. Uh, he hasn't been playing as much center field here because Pache has been playing center field. Uh, so that hasn't really been on display. But, um, he, he but yeah, I, I, knew, I at least know that from he college. can play center field. Yeah. Yeah, he's really good in center field. Uh, but th- as far as the swing goes, like there's always more raw power here than I expect there is when I watch him take BP. Yeah, uh, I just don't know if the swing works super well. So I still have him as like a low-end everyday guy because the defense in center field is good, but I don't really expect there to be anything with the bat. Keston Hewitt looks good at second base. Lucius Fox looks really good. Potts is fine. Evan White looks really good. Joe McCarthy looks good. Uh, that's probably it for this roster. Ditter, meh. Austin Allen is a no for me behind the plate. Um, I've had ongoing yeah. conversations with people about the most polite way to say no for stuff, and it's a no for now is what we settled on. It okay. Doesn't pre- they can come back again, but it's a no for now. <laughs> okay, moving on to Salt River. I'm going to take a quick trip through this. Oh, this pitching's a little bit better. So you got Duplantier and Castellani. Both look like they... Might be able to start. Justin Lawrence is throwing really hard. Smeltzer's got a weird angle. Yep. Uh, Yeah, Castellani Castellani has been hot and cold. Uh, The velo is down compared to where it was at peak. It's more like 92, 93 uh, right now uh, instead of like 93, 94, 95, touch of six. But the secondary stuff is good. The changeup is good. The breaking balls are both fine. I prefer the curveball to like the cuttery thing. Um, it's four command, uh, when he's bad and five command when he's good. So, you know, chance to be like a, a fourth starter, um, likelihood that he gets there is, I don't know, maybe it's like the 25th, uh, 25% chance that he's that or something better than that. Um, Duplantier, I really like, uh, obviously this guy had shoulder issues in college and had hamstring and bicep tendonitis issues during this year. Stuff is all the way back. Touch of seven, mostly 93, 95. 
slider is in the mid 80s like 83 87 and it's more cuttery up and then it has some vertical depth when it's down the curveball is in like the 78 to 83 range that's just your traditional vertical breaking ball both of those will flash plus the changeup is average flashing above he knows how to sequence he can throw uh the curveball for strikes when he wants he can throw the slider in on lefties uh, I think he's in the big leagues next year, especially given the lack of pitching depth in Arizona, Corbin leaving and Taiwan Walker's injury and all that stuff. Clay Buckholtz leaving. Uh, so Clay I think uh, – I know. So uh, yeah, like this was a pretty thin pitching staff last year. It looks like they're going to make a run at it again. One more goal a year. Uh, so I expect Duke to be up. Yeah, Justin Lawrence you mentioned with Colorado is a side armor that touches 100. So enjoy like, that. I'm going to guess it's four command. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, yeah, he's had some outings here where he's completely filthy because he's locating everything and others when he really struggles because he's not. All right. Um, um, run the some other, but we've been running a little late, so I'm going I'm okay, to right. give you a one-line report on these guys, and you tell me if I'm right. Okay. Uh, Brent Rooker, almost no defensive value, huge power, not sure how much of it he gets to. Rooker's hurt. Rooker has not go. really played. Brian Miller... Probably more of a fourth outfielder, maybe a low end starter. Uh, that's yes. Monte Harrison needs to fix his swing. Still has crazy tools. Needs to start yep. doing stuff. Yep. Paven Smith, you're hoping the power shows up in games, and it hasn't. Correct. I don't think it will. Keyboom, we continue to really like him. He's like a poor man's oh, yeah. Brendan Rodgers. I, I think we have him ahead of Brendan Rodgers. Maybe he's yeah, just he's just Rogers. better than Rodgers. There's more power. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, Tyler Nevin sounds like he is maybe the guy that's risen the most amongst uh, the hitters on the AFL that were already sort of somewhat thought of. Yeah, it could be like – might be seven bat. That Yeah. And it's but third, it's first base only, not third base. Oh, okay. So it's first base, seven bat, and what he had – six were on high school. Is that still about what it is? Uh, the In games, it doesn't play like that. It's probably more like 45, 50 in-game power. It's a lot of doubles. So it sounds sort of uh, like right-handed Todd Helton. Or, or late Adrian Gonzalez or something like that. Okay, yeah, maybe we're finding something a little closer. Uh, Jazz Chisholm uh, shows it. He's awesome. his big tools. Yeah. Uh, above average power. He's hunting first-pitch fastballs. He's great at shortstop. There's gonna, he's going to swing and miss, um, especially once pitchers figure out, oh, this guy's going to swing at this first thing I throw. Uh, so there will be adjustments, but he's really talented. I think he'll probably be a top 100 guy for us this offseason. And he's only 20. He's got to be one of the youngest guys in the league, right? Yeah. Uh, Travis Blankenhorn, chance to be a 50. Mm. Uh, I'm guessing you probably have more of a third baseman utility guy than second base. Yeah, the body has not come along in a great way. He's pretty stiff, but there is pop, and he is sort of passable at a bunch of different positions and has the correct hitter handedness so i still like him as a valuable big leaguer but i don't know if he's uh 50 yeah i caught him a couple games during the spring and and thought it looked like current day neil walker and then as i saw him more it was like a little more stiff and swinging missy and i was like okay it might be a little more 45 than it is 50 but it's somewhere around there and the last one dalton varsho very quick for a guy of that size and might be able to catch and knows how to hit uh, yeah, the catching stuff is still kind of in flux. It's a forearm, but he it plays up because he's uh, quick out of his crouch. The receiving stuff is still kind of an issue. He whiffs on a bunch of balls. Yeah, that's going to be an issue. Uh, all right, Scottsdale. Uh, taking a look at that pitching staff. Obviously, you got Forrest Whitley leading the charge. I would guess he's the best guy in the league by a mile. Yep. And then Bukowskis and Melvin Adon throws real hard. Is there another guy missing? 
Uh, I kind of like Leftwich with Philly as like a single inning reliever. Erasmo Pinales with Houston, sort of the same thing. 94-97 plus slider, three command. Trent Thornton's the other guy who's definitely worth mentioning. Uh, elite breaking ball spin rates, like way up over 3,000 RPMs. Has been up to 96, kind of hovering 92-94. Um, yeah, Garrett Williams has a great breaking ball. Sam Wolf has an above-average slider. Uh, yeah, there, there are a bunch of like one-pitch guys on here. Melvin Adon has been up to 101 with a seven slider, but his feel for the slider really comes and goes. Uh, Bukowskis, it's four pitches. I don't think the fastball plays like it's 94-98, but because he's small and a short strider, but there's enough there to work with that I think he's a valuable multi-inning reliever. Yep, and that seems to fit how his team uses pitchers. A uh, bunch of notable guys in this uh, lineup, so I'll run through them quickly again. Taylor Trammell, is it still... Six hit, five game power, six to seven run center field. Yeah, I don't think it's he hasn't played center field here. Uh, Ronnie Dawson has actually played more center field here than Tramel has. It's a forearm, and when he has to throw from weird platforms, it's a three arm. So maybe Tramel is a left field only guy. Um, he hasn't really played super well out here, and it has really bothered him. Like visibly, he wants to do well. He's a very competitive guy. He tried to get in the way of throw back to second base. He got hung up um, on a line drive at second base. He was going to get doubled off. And he tried to get in the way of the throw uh, to stop it from getting to the bag. Like, I really love Tramel. He's totally fine. He's not playing great out here, but he's he's totally fine. Desmond Lindsay, he was a guy I liked in high school that was pretty twitchy and then has just kind of always been hurt his whole career. Yeah, so the first – Lindsay I've been up and down on here. He looked really good for me the first bunch of times I saw him. And upon – further review it's pretty grooved swing um the body looks much better he's leaner and not as tightly wound now so maybe that'll be better as far as the injury stuff is concerned uh shed long i imagine now that he's caught a couple uh pitches in between innings you think he's a catcher now (laughs) shed uh shed has just been okay he has power uh the breaking ball stuff has still not been great he still kind of struggles with breaking balls and he's a fringe glove at second base still think it's enough that he's a good um everyday player but uh but yeah he's not like a stock up guy here Derek Derek hall with the phillies does he do anything for you he's got huge power that's kind of it yeah okay that's what i had um and then andres jimenez has he been okay or has he looked like he's run down uh he looks pretty run down yeah, I'm kind of gonna. I'm just gonna toss what I've seen from him. Which he does here. have huge tools, so if he looks run down, it's probably not gonna look very impressive. Yeah, definitely not. And then Pete Alonso still hits ball real hard. Right. Yeah, it's eight raw, four defensive first base. Like he's not a good defensive first baseman. I don't think the Mets had merit in holding him down because their alternatives there were not good. Um, and the thing but, I've said a thousand times that he's not the guy that you need all six years of when he's not going to get there until he's 24. Correct. Uh, which I think may be an interesting topic for later to talk about, you know, once we get oh, yeah. the list done, the, the guys who have uh, unique distributions of their outcomes. Uh, yep. All right, last team, moving to surprise, and running down this pitching staff, it does not look very good, other than Nate Pearson. Yeah, Pearson has, the velocity's been all over the place because he was he was 100 to 105 in the Fall Stars game, which good? was, he, he was on five days rest, and he threw an inning. Um and then three days later, he came out and he was like 95, 97. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know how you grade a 95-mile-an-hour slider, but that's what he threw in the uh, Fall Stars game a bunch of times. Uh, I guess it's an eight. So it's still – Pearson is still clearly like, okay, here's all this stuff, and you really kind of want him to prove over time 
over just even just the course of a season, what he can do, um, like as a starter. Yeah, in a similar way with Hunter Green, it was like, oh, can this guy sit ninety nine to one hundred for like three straight years without getting hurt? Yeah. And the answer so far is uh, looks like no, but we'll see. Maybe it's just this this little blip. You've got a bunch of one pitch guys on this team. Connor Jones with St. Louis has a seven sinker, it's like up to ninety eight with crazy heavy sink. Um, Demarcus Evans is a mid nineties guy with crazy fastball plane, but the way he gets to that plane is uh, also affects how he gets over his front side and his strike throwing. Uh, pretty skeptical. Blewett, I haven't seen him in a while. Blewett has been really good. Yeah, um, like up to ninety five, four pitches, strikes. Yeah, he's been pretty good here. Um, starter look or just yeah it's yeah but probably like the back the back of rotation type guy you know zach jackson with toronto is another relief only type evan krasinski with st louis is a four pitch athletic lefty with big time extension six foot five so that guy might be the back of rotation too Uh, i'm gonna guess vlad jr is the highest rated hitter on this team correct yeah Uh, he's really second best i'm gonna guess cole tucker uh as far as prospects are concerned yeah um, as far as the hitting stuff alone is concerned, I'd probably take, uh, no, it's still probably pretty close. Yeah. It looks like Tommy Edmonds of... got really good bat to balls. Like a bunch of these guys are 50 hitters with 55 power and then their entire prospect status is dictated by where they fit defensively. Yeah. There's a lot of guys that look like sort of, uh, role players or low end regulars, uh, Lane Thomas, Brian Reynolds, Khalil Lee, Kevin Biggio, Will Craig. Uh, Nick Heath might be um, Andy Young. Terrence Gore. Yeah. Taller Terrence Gore. That's an eight runner with an eight body. And uh, yeah, he can really move. Yeah, then you got Mavis um, Valoria, who uh, shows you some things behind the plate. But yeah, it's, or, just, uh, it's just if you take away Pearson and Vlad, this is like a pretty generic team. Yeah, I dig Andy Young. He's my sleeper. St. Louis, Indiana State, 37th rounder, $3,000 bonus, uh, above average plus pull power. It's really only pull, like it's a pull-only approach, but he knows how to attack it, like pitches that he can drive. So I'm kind of into that. Uh, Lane Thomas had a huge year. I'm not really buying it. Um, Very upright, can really be beaten down and away with breaking balls. Brian Reynolds is on the list of guys I've seen the least out here. Um, he just always leaves me wanting a little more. It's like, can you play center? Ah, not quite. Is he going to hit? Not bad. Does he get to all of his power? Nah, not all of it. It's just like, ugh, I don't know. 41 at-bats. He's got more walks and strikeouts out here. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm mixed on him too. But also, it's rare to have like a switch hitting center fielder with some pop, you know? So even if he's a 45 defender out there, I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, so he's going to keep getting chances and he got drafted high and he, you know, performed some in college, but there are too many strikeouts. It's just like every good comes with a bad, basically. Uh, Yeah, well then, I guess obviously Whitley and Vlad Jr. would come out as the two top guys in the league, I would imagine. Or I guess you could put Keyboom ahead of Whitley if you want to, but um, but yeah, I guess... You could Keyboom or Keston Hura ahead of Whitley if you really wanted to. Yeah, so... Hura has been really good. There's a sneak preview of, I guess, how those guys may be moving up or down. And if I feel like I get a lot of questions, even though I think people that follow me closely know that I didn't go to the Fall League. But who are your sleeper guys? Uh, there's your sleeper guys. So thanks, Eric, to, for going to all these games. Oh, uh, yeah, you're welcome. It's just a pain in the ass to go. <laughs> what a terrible job you have. Yeah, I hate it.
Well, well, now we're uh, move on to our next segment, uh, talking to Cheryl Ring about another ridiculous story that you know maybe that'll be the ongoing theme for our third topic is just find a ridiculous news story. All right, and we're to segment three. Uh, we are having on Fangraph's resident legal expert Cheryl Ring. Cheryl, how you doing? I am just fine. How about yourself? Good. I thought we had a pretty good topic, but uh, in the pre-topic discussion off-air, I realized we have a great topic. So I'm going to hand it over to Eric, <laughs> who discovered this topic, and let him take us on a journey. Okay, so thank you, Kylie. Uh, Aaron Gleeman, uh, Baseball Prospectus's editor-in-chief, tweeted out that um, an excerpt from a complaint filed in Hennepin County Court in Minnesota – and in this in the section, uh, there's there's specific language that I'm sure we'll get into. But essentially, Howard Norsket, uh, Norsetter, who uh, was a scout with the Twins, he was like their international uh, scouting coordinator. He has he has filed a lawsuit claiming that the Twins fired him and several other scouts, uh, and and is suing them for age discrimination. And so, I guess Cheryl, like the stuff that. And there's a, a lot to unpack uh, in this case, but just on its face, like the legal aspects of it, based on what you've seen uh, in some of the language in the complaint, what what is your opinion on the the validity of this lawsuit? How do age discrimination lawsuits work? What might we be looking at uh, as far as this case is concerned? So that's really an excellent question. The, the thing that's, that stuck out to me Right away, when I read the complaint, and um, Aaron was good, and Aaron Gleeman was good enough to get me a copy of the whole complaint because it's not, believe it or not, Hennepin County is one of those jurisdictions that still does not have their docket online. Um, but the thing that stuck out to me the most in the complaint wasn't what it said; it was what was not in there. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The federal law that governs, that pro- prohibits age discrimination in employment is a law called the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. It was passed in 1967. We call it the ADEA. And nowhere in this, in this complaint does Norsetter allege anything under the ADEA. It's the first age discrimination lawsuit I've ever seen that doesn't mention the federal law on age discrimination. Instead, he's proceeding only under the state analog for the ADEA, which is the Minnesota Human Rights Act. Now, a lot of states have statutes usually called the Human Rights Act. Sometimes it's called something else. Sometimes it's in the state's UDAP statute. That's the Unfair and Deceptive Practices statute. But every, every state has one or both of those laws that essentially cover all of the federal laws. And usually they're more, they're more comprehensive rather than less with respect to the federal law. The weird thing about proceeding only under your state's law is because Minnesota's age discrimination law is fairly unsettled at this point, particularly in after a series of federal court decisions that seem to apply the, the but-for causation test. It's something that I went over uh, in my piece that is, that is typically used in the ADEA to state law. So the, the thing that really stuck out to me was you're, you're bringing suit under a state law without the federal law analog and there isn't really a good reason to bring suit under one and not the other unless you are absolutely desperate to stay out of federal court. And to be perfectly honest, 
I'm not sure that he could stay at the federal court with this case anyway, given something called diversity jurisdiction, which I'm not going to get into, but all the lawyers who are listening will know what that is. So if you're going to end up in federal court anyway, and odds are that you are, it just doesn't make any sense to me not to bring suit under the applicable federal law. Does the fact that some of the other scouts named in the suit, uh, there's a part of the part of the text in the complaint lists a number of scouts that the twins have fired over the last year and a half. Uh, many of them are over 60 years of age. Does the fact that those folks live all over the country impact uh, like that what you're talking about here, whether this is a state case or a federal case? To be perfectly honest, it, that doesn't necessarily impact it one way or another because the, the federal law is going to apply whether it, there's one instance of a discrimination or a hundred. The really weird thing is that there's just no mention of the ADEA at all. And that's weird because most of the applicable precedents are going to be the same uh, it, for the federal law and the state law analog. So it's really a very odd decision. And I, I'm sure that his attorney had his reasons, but it just is not it's a very unusual way to handle an age discrimination case to not bring an action under the federal age discrimination law. The the thing about the, the one thing I will say about the, the the large number of people who are mentioned who were fired, and there are some big names in there, something that I, I talked about in my piece. But if, if you look at the complaint, they're talking about some pretty significant names, top people who had been with the, with the team for a long time. And, it started evidently with a, a changeover when Derek Falvey and when Tad Levin got hired. And all of a sudden, according to the complaint, at least, the twins start going young across the board. So they're, they're mentioning people like Wayne Krivsky, who was fired, Greg Orr, Marty Esposito, Mark Wilson. These are, you know, pretty well-known people. Um, and if, in fact, they were doing some kind of house cleaning with respect to everybody, that kind of allegation could be beneficial or not beneficial for a person's case. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The reason why I don't like these long paragraphs in a complaint, it's what we, we call it in the industry block pleading, is that you can't break down an, admiss an admission or denial of each individual allegation. So if you're firing 10, 11, 12 people who are all over 60, there's a few different reasons that you might do that. So, for example, maybe... Uh, maybe Derek Falvey did decide, you know what, I like young people, I only want to work with young people, everyone over the age of 50, get out. Is it possible? Sure. But courts in the United States tend to apply what's called a but-for causation test in age discrimination cases. In other words, you have to show that the reason you were fired or demoted or whatever it was, was because of your age. Would you have been fired but for your age? And if you're saying, for example, I want to have a newfound focus on analytics. Odds are that an effect of that is going to be you're going to be replacing some of your older personnel with younger personnel. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily illegal if your goal is to become more analytics driven. It's entirely possible under the state of the law as it exists right now to have a to, to replace older people with younger people without breaking the law so long as you have a non-pretextual reason for doing so, if that makes sense. Is there any – some of the stuff that's in the complaint cites uh, that the complainant stated that the twins told him when he was let go that it was not for performance reasons. Is that or anything like it uh, on the twins' behalf a misstep that might uh, incriminate them? 
It, the biggest problem we have with this complaint is that it's just one side of the story. Now, if he was not let go as a result of his performance, and it, it's important to note just who Norsetter is. This is the guy who found Justin Morneau. That, that there are 20, 25 big leaguers that I counted that are on, that he found and signed on his ledger, and you would probably know even more than that than I would. The, the fact is that I... I I am kind of skeptical of this lawsuit for a couple of reasons. Number one, given the state of age discrimination law in the United States, it is a really hard case to make that you were that the sole reason you were fired was because of your age. And beyond that, it is entirely possible to do your job well, be replaced by somebody younger, be fired for non-performance issues, and still not be and not be liable for age discrimination like i said there are a lot of reasons why you might want to replace somebody that are entirely legal and have nothing to do with age depending on what direction that falvey wanted to go in norsetter might have been out might not have been the person for that direction what do i mean by that norsetter is based in australia a lot of his focus has been in australia and southeast asia if Falvey wanted to focus more on Latin America or on North America in terms of his scouting, then he might want somebody who was based closer to that area. North Center in Australia isn't well situated for that kind of job. And that would have nothing to do with his age. It would have nothing to do with his performance. It might just be Falvey making the baseball decision to switch the focus of where he wants to look for potential prospects. There's a lot of reasons why Falvey might have made that decision. So I, I'm somewhat skeptical because the complaint doesn't provide any any statements by anyone saying that it was his age, any evidence. He says on information and belief the reasons were pretextual. The only thing that stuck out to me was that he offered to work in another position for less pay, and they said no. That's really, for me, the key fact here. If, in fact, he said, you know what, I'll just be your Australia scout and I'll work for an Australia scout's salary, and they said no, maybe based on that there might be a case here. But there are just too many plausible reasons for a, a team to make this decision. For And there's not enough in the complaint for me to say this is this is something that that is definitely age discrimination here uh, for example if you if you look at the case that angel hernandez filed against major league baseball he had specific instances of statements made by people in major league baseball he had statistics showing the difference in representation between umpires who are white and umpires of color there that was a really fact loaded complaint this one is just not the, the only evidence that seems to be here from the complaint is there were a bunch of people who were fired who were over 55 years old. And some of the people who were fired ostensibly as part of this age discrimination scheme, there is no actual age provided. Like Alan Sandberg, for example, who there is no age given for him. Um, so this is it, it's. I have to admit, I'm, based on the complaint, I'm skeptical. It's possible that there's more here that they've just elected not to plead. But on the face of this complaint, there's a lot missing. I, I would say one of the interesting things is from the, the twins, uh, the, as you were saying, like going from a more traditional organization to a more, we'll say, progressive one, to use the terms we use on the podcast a lot. 
that's going to tend to be younger people. Um, and so, as you were saying, that's like an obvious way that you're getting rid of older people for something other than age. It just happens to be ages attached to it. Uh, I, I guess my question is, if they, if the twins rehired or hired a, an Australian scout for the job that he said he would take for less money, w- would that be considered like an even uh, an even more powerful piece? I, I don't know if they did do that, but let's just say, for instance, they did do that. Is that notably changed sort of like the the preponderance of the evidence being, you know, weighing one way versus the other if they if they hired a younger Australian scout, presumably for the job he offered to do? You know, it, it would depend. And and the reason why this is a, a really, for me at least, a really difficult sell is that the scouting is a really subjective thing. I mean, of course, there's from a legal perspective, at least, it's a very subjective thing. And I I know that there are undoubtedly objective metrics with, by which to measure performance, but it seems to me that if you're putting together a scouting staff as a matter of law, there are a lot of different approaches that you can take subjectively in the legal sense, each, none of which is better than any other way, each of which is equally valid, equally viable. So whenever you have a situation like that where you have multiple approaches to one particular job and you have somebody in charge who has his or her pick of those approaches it's a hard sell to say that it is it's age discrimination to fire somebody who is older in favor of a younger person who fits your philosophy so if they were to hire a new scout in australia it would depend to me at least if i were the judge it would depend on what was the impetus for hiring that person instead was it just that they were younger or cheaper or was it that this person is versed in analytics was it that this person is able is better able to scout the the modern fastball is it better that is it just that this person whoever it is is more computer literate is it that this person whoever it is is more able to travel is it that this person whoever it is is better with data is it that they're looking for somebody who can code is it that they're looking for somebody who is who is bilingual or trilingual is it that they're looking for somebody who is going to be more versatile in the type of player that they're looking for there's a lot of things that can go into something like that and it isn't i think that all scouts are created equal so without some kind of measurement of what his what Kind, how what his performance was yes it's easy to say that it wasn't performance related but performance according to what if it was performance according to the the metrics that were in place with the old school front office that the twins used to have then absolutely it's not going to be a performance related firing but if it performance relative to what the expectations are of a modern scout it's entirely possible that you could be fired in favor of somebody younger without there being any age discrimination involved one of the things this this the the way scouting is changing and not just who is scouting but what is doing the scouting uh is is a pretty frequent discussion topic for kylie and i uh, on the air in our writing uh off the air do scouts as a collective have any legal recourse that might slow the bleeding? Because this is this is a, it's a complex issue, right? Like we have sympathy for these folks whose jobs are being uh, automated in some ways and they are um, – the game is evolving past where these folks who have been in the game for multiple decades uh, from like an information standpoint uh, where they can keep up in a lot of ways. Or certainly some of them are not willing to try to keep up. Uh, is there across scouts uh, as a collective any sort of legal recourse that they can 
pursue to try to cling on for longer before things really go belly up and scouting as we know it uh, changes completely in the next five to ten years? That's a really complex question. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, are you talking about a scout who is a contract employee or an at-will employee? Because I've seen both in, in the context of scouting. Some scouts are hired as at-will employees. Some scouts are hired as contract employees. If you're a contract employee, you have a little bit more protection. But most at-will employment is terminable at any time for any legal reason. So there aren't a whole lot of protections there. Now, is there a way to make sure that a human being is is not going to be replaced by a computer or a machine when it comes to scouting or that there's going to be to, or to make sure that human scouting doesn't go the way of the dinosaur from a legal perspective that's something that's been discussed a lot in the law and economics field uh, more generally in the context of how do we make sure that human beings don't end up the human that the, the human isn't lost in the law as law moves forward it there was a really interesting article a few months ago in one of the uh, publications about how you, can, you now have software that can do the job of a lawyer. It can look through all of the applicable precedents, find the best ones, and draft a brief all automatically and for a lot less of a, a cost than having a human lawyer do it. So why do, aren't we all represented by machines yet? Because there's this really interesting little glitch where the, the computer program that is substituting for a lawyer tends to favor corporations and rich people. And people aren't quite sure that the programmers aren't sure whether this is the result of the programmer's own biases, whether it's the natural evolutionary result of where the law is going, or whether this is just an emergent property of the software itself. And until then, we're still going to have humans until we figure that out. And so it's that sort of human element that is what keeps lawyers around doing our job because computers don't have that kind of empathy. Computers can't handle the, the human aspect of the law. And so it's not a very scientific answer, but the, and the law and economics crowd, those of us who are talking about the changing of the economy and moving more towards uh, automation and away from humans doing jobs, there isn't anything in the law that says you have a right to a job. But it is important for employers to recognize that there are still some things that computers can't do. And one of those is measuring the human element. There is not a computer program on the planet that is going to be able to measure the psychology or the human element or the makeup of a prospect in the way that a human can, even though a computer might be better at every other aspect of it. Cheryl Ring, thank you very much. Uh Everyone check out Cheryl's piece on this, this issue on the site. Uh, it's currently titled, A Scout is Suing the Minnesota Twins for Age Discrimination. Do we want to talk about the, the lawyer in this case, uh, he, which is also sort of his own of a, interesting thing? He is a bit of a colorful fellow. Um, he seems to have a, a penchant for suing everyone under the sun for, for something regarding happy hour. He's a, I'll put it this way. He's a he's an unusual choice for a rep, for a legal representative, and that might explain why there is no ADEA claim. Um, but his his history in in protracted litigation is something that also should be seen here, because he's not exactly known for bringing successful cases. And I'll leave it at that. Cheryl, would you say that suing someone over the existence of happy hour may not be the most prudent legal approach? 
I'll, you know, I'll put it this way. I, I've, there, there's a saying among consumer lawyers that a, a class action has to pass the laugh test. I've seen some frivolous lawsuits. I've, you know, the, the, the lawsuit brought against, uh, there was a lawsuit brought against Visine because the eye drops were too big. There was a lawsuit brought against Starbucks because there was too much ice in the iced beverages. At a certain point, you have to think about the lawsuit that you're bringing and saying, gee, is this funny? And happy hour cases are very, very funny. Very funny. All right, sure. We'll, 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 we'll finish on this. I'll, I'll allow the listener to decide if this is funny. I'm going to read the opening sentence of the complaint against happy hour, and they can decide if this is funny or not. Plaintiff Stephen Yur is a man on a mission. Some years ago, he discovered the existence of what he believes to be a vast nationwide conspiracy involving literally thousands of entities and individuals to bring an end to happy hour and other drink promotions and thereby increase the profit margins of bars and restaurants. Since discovering this conspiracy, Ur has bought multiple lawsuits, first as an attorney representing others, now as a pro se plaintiff representing only himself, seeking to recover damages from the alleged conspirators. So if you're laughing, that's not a great sign. If you're straight-faced, we may have a problem. I like a $5 uh, Moscow Mule as much as the next guy, but I don't know. This, this is like our, our last episode when we had the uh, the family who thought that pitching varsity baseball was a constitutionally given right. I'm like, I didn't go to law school, but that does not sound like it's in the constitution. Wait, wait, wait. You 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 had that on and you did not bring me on? I'm very offended. That, it, it that was sounds in, like a really, really interesting thing. It was in minute 25 of a 26-minute segment about a baseball player's dad suing for him to switch schools and play varsity baseball right away. And at the very end, we got to the, ooh, I don't think the constitution is the thing you refer to in this. No, that feels like no, a, no. No, like a no, stretch. No. Yeah, um, it, it's amazing what people think they have a constitutional right to these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. This segment has met the laugh test. Thanks <laughs> for coming on, Cheryl. Cheryl, do you have anything you want to plug uh, besides this piece before we cut you loose? Um, I've, I'm working on this, and I have uh, the next portion of my Law of Tanking piece that should be going up this week. Which is a really interesting look at, at least it's interesting to me, at whether or not tanking is acceptable under the baseball rules. It's actually something that a lot of players have been raising over the course of the year, whether tanking violates Rule 21. Very interesting. Well, I look forward to uh, to reading that. Uh, Cheryl Ring, everybody, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> as Ellie Ben Porat would would has told us, it's like yeah, you guys have like a strong bias towards younger players. Like, yep, that's Ooh. correct. I, I foresee um, some, somebody repeating this in a court of law now. We'll have to have Cheryl back on. We'll retain. <laughs> it. You, you say Kikuchi, um, I say Kikuchi. What? Well, great. <laughs> you you, you uh, so, Chin Chang Chang <laughs> You're not okay. We can talk about that later off the air because the uh, people were saying that at the Fall Stars game last night. I feel um, like I originated, but sorry, go ahead. 